You may be seated. If you will turn in your Bibles to the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Luke as we continue our study through the Word. Now you'll remember we've been watching Jesus in his final week of his earthly ministry and, and he has come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, his last Passover. And he makes his triumphal entry and every day he continues to go into the temple and, and to teach the crowds. And you'll remember that the religious leaders are upset with that and they seek now to undermine Jesus. But Jesus continues to just pour forth in truth. And, and we've seen Jesus then give the, the parable of the wicked vineyard workers and, and the parable of judgment and and we see that Jesus uh, afterwards, as the disciples were walking with him, they look up and they marvel at the beauty of the temple. And you remember that, that Jesus then begins to talk to them about that and gives what's known as the Olivet Discourse. And he begins to talk to them about the temple and the fact that not one of those stones is going to remain upon another. And, and the disciples are shocked at that and ask, when is that going to happen? What are going to be the signs? What's going to lead up to that? And, and so Jesus talks to them uh, about that. He, he begins to minister to them and, and tells them not only about the destruction of the temple, but also what they themselves are going to experience. Great difficulty, great personal persecution is going to come against them. They're going to be brought before kings and nobles and, and to give a defense for their belief in Christ. And he told them, don't worry what you're going to say, but that the Holy Spirit will give you the very words at that moment. You remember that Jesus telescoped from there into the future to his second coming and, and ultimately he declared to them that they need to watch and to pray. You'll remember that he gave the parable of the fig tree and he said that when you see those leaves beginning to bud, know that summer is near. And, and now Jesus is going to turn his attention towards the, the last supper, the Passover meal and celebration itself and he is going to gather with his disciples and institute the the lord's table communion and and we are going to see the preparations for that meal and we're going to see some of the events that transpired towards that meal but but ultimately we are going to see that he is going to institute communion and so we're going to talk about the communion table and what exactly does that mean and what impact does that have on you and, and I today? So let's jump in here. Luke's gospel, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. Now, Passover and unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread, were two feasts that were joined back to back. The feast of Passover, that was a one-day celebration. And then the feast of unleavened bread was a seven-day celebration. And so altogether, it, it consisted of eight days. Now, oftentimes it had just been referred to as the Passover, and that meant the whole eight-day feast that was going to take place. 
The Passover itself celebrated their national deliverance from the nation of Egypt. You'll remember when Moses was sent by God to go and to set his people free. And you remember the different plagues that came and, and each time set my people free. And, and then there was the final plague. And the final plague was the plague of judgment. It was the angel of death that was going to come through and was going to, to slay the firstborn of every family. And, and so the Jews were told to take a lamb and to sacrifice the lamb and to take the blood of the lamb and to put it over the doorposts of their house. And the angel of death, when he came for every family and all the people that were gathered underneath the blood of the lamb, that the judgment would pass over them and would not enter into that household. Hence the name Passover, the judgment Passover. But ultimately what we see is that Jesus is the Passover because we take the blood of Jesus Christ and now we put it over the doorposts of our life. And what happens is his judgment for all of our sin now passes over us and we are not judged for our sins. Jesus took that penalty upon himself. So Jesus is the completion. He is the fulfillment of the Passover. What the Passover was, was a typology for the nation to teach them about a physical deliverance, but Jesus' deliverance for us is a spiritual and an eternal. Their deliverance out of Egypt was temporal, but ours through Christ is eternal. And so this was just the type, and now we have the fulfillment of that type. Jesus is going to approach this final meal now with his disciples, recognizing and knowing with his awareness that he is the lamb of God that is going to be offered up at this Passover. And so the feast, it has come now for the time for them to celebrate the feast of the Passover. And it says in verse two, and the chief priests and scribes sought they, how they might kill him. For they feared the people. And so we see the chief priests and the scribes working together and they are plotting the most treasonous crime that has ever been committed in the history of the world. I looked up the word treason and it said the crime of murdering someone to whom the murderer owed allegiance. And here we see that it was the religious leaders uh, that now were plotting this mm, treachery, this mm, treason here. To them had been entrusted the oracles of God. They were the keepers of the, of the doctrines. They were the keepers of the truth. And their responsibility was to be looking for the Messiah, to identify him and to point the whole nation. They owed their allegiance to the Messiah. But instead of, uh, of loyalty, what they received, what Jesus received was treachery. They now sought to murder the very one that they should have owed their allegiance to. And so we see that they feared the people. They couldn't just rush out and grab Jesus and kill him because the people would rise up in, in protest. And so they were seeking. How is it that we can get at him? Every day he comes into the temple. Every day the crowds are all around him. And so they were seeking this opportunity. It says in verse 3, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. 
we see that his betrayer now is identified. It's one of Jesus's 12, one of the inner circle of Jesus's group. And it says that Judas was motivated by Satan himself, that Satan here gained direct control over Judas. We have in the scriptures on at least two different uh, occasions. Here we have when Judas was entered by Satan as he is going to, to make a deal to betray him. And then we will see at the Last Supper, it says that Judas now enters, I mean, Satan enters Judas again at that very meal. And so we see that Judas now is in cooperation. He is yielded over to Satan, and he is now no longer following after Jesus. It says in verse 4, so he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. We see that Judas went his way. Notice that now he is no longer following after Jesus. Jesus invites us to come and to follow after him. But here we see that Judas is no longer following Jesus, but he has gone his own way. It is always the heart of man to exalt self and to go where we want to go, to do what we want to do. We have that immortal song, I did it my way. Well, my way is not the Lord's way. It's the exact opposite. It is here the very same thing. Judas went his way. But Judas going his way means that he turned away from the light of the world and walked straight into the pit of darkness. We see that now he had departed from following after Jesus because of his own selfish ambition, his own selfish desires. He had followed Jesus for what he could get from Jesus. There was an exciting ground floor opportunity. The kingdom of God was being set up and, and he was right there at the beginning. He was trusted now by the other apostles and by Jesus. He was the, uh, the money holder. He was the one that would disperse the petty cash and handle the financial affairs. And it is possible that Judas dreamed of being the national treasurer over the new kingdom. <laughs> but his heart was filled with greed. And his desire was for money. And when he now sees the tremendous opposition that is happening with the religious leaders and how antagonistic it has become, Judas now decides that, that he is never going to see this kingdom established. He is never going to have the wealth that he desired through Jesus. And maybe this is getting a little dangerous uh, for myself. Maybe I need to get out and to go cut myself a, a side deal here and, and prepare a back door to get out of the things that are transpiring. The exaltation of self, looking out for self, self-promotion. These are all the things that will cause us to turn away from God and to fulfill ourselves. We see that he sought how he might betray him to them. And look at what it says in verse 5. And they were what? They were glad. The world is always glad to receive a backslidden Christian. 
Know this, that when you turn away from God, the world is there with arms wide open to give you refuge and to promise you gratification and fulfillment of all of the things that, uh, that following after the Lord didn't bring you. The world promises that it will fulfill you and the world will receive you gladly. They were glad when Judas came to them. Judas, what is it that you want? What, what is it that you desire? And, and what Judas wanted was money. And they said, we are happy to give you money. The world will feed you whatever is your weakness, whatever it is that your flesh craves and hungers for the world is, is filled with the promise of that and gratification. The world today seeks to exalt every single person telling you that you deserve to be happy, that you should do what's in your own best interest, that, uh, that you need to be true to yourself. And regardless of promises or vows or covenants that you've made, if it's not working and you're not happy, then time is too short and you need to live for today and celebrate your life because if you don't take care of yourself, who's going to take care of you? And so the world promises and promises and promises to come and to find your fulfillment and your satisfaction in the world. But know that that is just the bait that is on the hook. For once that hook is set, that sin and that self-exaltation and gratification will pull you into the destruction of every single part of the kingdom of God that has been built into your life. Every single good, healthy relationship will now deteriorate and disintegrate uh, under the sin that will now seek to exalt itself over you. And ultimately, your sin will destroy you. And so here, the, the world is happy. They rejoice. They welcome Judas. They promise him what his flesh desires. And for 30 measly pieces of silver, Judas will now ultimately betray the Lord. We see that verse 6, it says, And so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Judas is a warning now to all of us of how close a person can come to the kingdom of God and still not enter in. It does not make you a Christian to have Christian friends. It does not make you a Christian to gather yourself in the midst of a Christian community. It doesn't make you a Christian to come and to sit and to sing the songs. It doesn't make you a Christian to hear the Bible passages and taught and read. It doesn't make you a Christian to read the Bible passages and to memorize the scriptures. You can come into the proximity of the kingdom and surround yourself with every trapping of it, but that does not mean that you yourself have entered into it. Judas walked around with the light of the world and experienced the, the miracle and the ministry of Jesus Christ during Jesus' earthly ministry, but he never entered into that relationship with Jesus Christ. He was always seeking to use Jesus to, to get his own needs met rather than surrendering his life to the Lord and to the Savior of the world. And so Judas now is determined 
and purposed in his heart that he will seek an opportunity to betray Jesus. It says in verse 7, And then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. The Passover meal was a, a celebration of their deliverance. They would take and sacrifice a lamb. They would bring it to the temple and the priest would sacrifice the lamb and then you would take the lamb home and, and you would roast the lamb and, and there was unleavened bread and, and a whole elaborate ritual meal that you would celebrate with the different prescribed prayers and throughout. And it was a time of rehearsing the, the power of God and, and God's love for his people and their deliverance out of Egypt. And so the disciples now are instructed by Jesus to go and prepare a room for them all to celebrate this meal. And so they said to him, verse 9, where do you want us to prepare? They would need a location, a room that would be large enough for the whole group to gather. And, and he said to them, verse 10, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. And then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished upper room and there make ready. And so we see here that, uh, that now he takes Peter and John and he tells them to go and prepare the room and they say, what's the address? <laughs> And Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. Forget about an address. Just walk into the city and, and you're going to find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Just tail him back to whatever house he, he goes to and tell the master of that house that, that the Lord has need of your room and, and there he will show you the room. Now, it's interesting because he says, go and you're going to find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Remember how mobbed Jerusalem is during the Passover. And now it is time to get all the preparation. Everybody is busy running around the city getting ready for the Passover meal. I want you to know if he had said, go into the city and you're going to find a woman carrying now a jar of water, that there would be thousands of women carrying a pitcher of water around Jerusalem because that was considered to be women's work. But a man, he typically wasn't carrying a pitcher of water. So to come in to see a man carrying a pitcher of water, he would be easily identifiable amongst the, the crowds now. But why doesn't Jesus just give him an address? <laughs> why doesn't he just tell him the location of the house where the preparations are ready? I believe it's because uh, he knows that Judas is seeking to betray him. And that if he was to declare where they are going to celebrate the Passover, that that would afford an opportunity for his arrest to take place during the meal. They would be away from the crowds uh, and they would be celebrating the Passover meal. Jesus has important things that he is looking forward to establishing in that last meal. And so being arrested and interrupting that last Passover meal was not part of the plan that Jesus had. And so he simply directs them in a way that they're going to be the only two that know where that room is. And in fact, they won't even know it until they have come to it itself. 
I believe that it was Peter and John who are the two that had been told by Jesus to, uh, to go in and steal the donkey just a few days uh, earlier. And now they're told to go into the city and wander around looking for a man carrying a pitcher of water. <laughs> I think that as they were going, they said, you know, this is a much better deal than the stealing of the donkey who was... Uh, and it says in verse 13, so they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Everything was now readied. And the Passover meal, it was time to celebrate it. You were to take and prepare the lamb during the daytime. You were to roast it, and you were to eat the meal between sundown and midnight. You were to eat all of the lamb. There was to be no leftover lamb whatsoever, and no bones were to be broken in the lamb in the preparation and in the eating of the lamb. And so verse 14, it says, When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles uh, with him. And so they have gathered together now into that room. In verse 15, Jesus declares, Then he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus had eagerly desired this in time with them, for he is going to institute the the Lord's table, the communion. And so we see that he desires this meal. We also see from John's gospel what is known as the upper room discourse that Jesus has an awful lot to share with the disciples during this final meal that he is going to have with them. He pours out his, his heart in preparation of the disciples for his departure with them. But he says that he's not going to partake of the Passover meal here until I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The fulfillment of the Passover meal in the kingdom of God is going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is when we will now sit down and enjoy that feast when Christ has come as God is bride and has returned to heaven. And so here he is now making the preparations to offer himself up as that lamb that will now allow for the bride's purchase price and she will be redeemed and, and none other than the shed blood uh, uh, of himself. And so Jesus is preparing and equipping now for the bride's uh, ransom. In verse 17, then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I want you to know that there are four cups that are a part of the celebration of the Passover meal. And, and each cup is connected to one of the four promises of God that's found in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And so the first cup declares, I will bring you out, the promise of God to bring you out. The second cup represents the promise of I will rescue them from their bondage. The third cup is I will redeem you. And the fourth cup, 
The cup that is taken after the supper is over at the end of the meal carries the promise that I will take you as my people and I will be your God. This is now the cup that will be celebrated in heaven at the marriage supper when we now are taken as the bride. We're promised as his, but we are taken and consummated when we now go to heaven and celebrate the marriage supper. It is here that he stops. They have celebrated the first three cups. But now it is this fourth cup, the promise now that I will be yours and you will be mine, that he then pauses. And and it says now at this point, verse 19, and he took bread. He gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. And do this in remembrance of me. We see here that Jesus now comes and and declares to them that this bread now symbolizes his body. Bread throughout the scriptures to the Jews was considered to be a gift from God. They believed that it was irreverent to take a knife and to cut bread. And so they would only take it and break it with their hands. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the living manna that came down from heaven. And and Jesus now equates his body with that bread that will be broken. Jesus wanted them to remember his sacrifice. Do this in remembrance of me. No greater love is a man than this than he would lay down his life for his friend. And Jesus here is declaring the the extent of that love and saying, don't ever forget how much I love you. And come to the communion table and constantly be reminded of that great demonstration of that act of sacrificial love that he laid down his life so that we might live. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And so Jesus had made the vow to abstain from that fourth cup. And and normally that promise that I will take you as my people, as mine, and, and I will be your God. And Jesus now reserves the drinking of that and final cup for the future restoration. This cup is the new covenant now in my blood, which is shed for you. And so underneath this new covenant, Jesus would take our place. He would pay our penalty and and we would have judgment for our sin and death would pass over us. And so unlike the blood of animals that only covered our sin, Jesus' blood removes our sin from us. In verse 21, Jesus then declares, but behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. We see that immediately before Jesus says this, he has just washed the feet of the disciples. I want you to imagine that for a minute, that Jesus stops and he kneels down and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. You remember when he comes to Peter that that Peter says, no, not me, Lord, you can't wash my feet. 
And Jesus says that if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. The, the foot washing was, was now representative of just the daily sins that we track onto our feet as we go through life. And though we are saved, we still are sinners and we still continue to sin and we still need just a foot washing from the daily dust and grime that gets upon our souls on, a, on an ongoing basis. And so Jesus says, no, you must deal with your sin and get that washed and cleansed. And you'll remember that Peter then says, well, then not just my feet, then, then my whole body and... <laughs> And this would be indicative of, of receiving Christ over and over and over again. And you only receive Christ once and you're washed. But your feet, they'll gather a little bit of dust and we just need to continually take care of that. Oftentimes people want to come and receive Christ over and over and over. And every time they've fallen away, they want to come back and receive Christ again. And, and there is no need for that. Just a washing, just a foot washing. But there was a moment when Jesus comes to Judas. And Jesus knows that Judas is about to betray him. And Jesus washes Judas' feet. I don't know about you, but if I was washing the feet of the disciples and I knew that this one was going to betray me, I would just skip him. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't. He continues to love him. Even while Judas is against him. We see that the scriptures tell us that we're to love even our enemies. Have you ever trusted anybody only to be betrayed? opened your heart and your life only to feel the soul-piercing pain of betrayal. Jesus knows exactly what you experienced. He experienced it himself. And yet he didn't cover up himself and he didn't protect himself and he didn't shove Judas aside. He continued to love Judas all the way through. He bends down and serves and ministers to him, washes his feet, and, and his arms are open to invitation. Judas, please. My love is here. My relationship is open to you. But Judas will have no part. Jesus teaches us how to love in every circumstance. Nothing stopped Jesus from loving others. He was physically tired and exhausted from ministry, and yet that never stopped him from setting himself aside and ministering to the crowds. The betrayal of an inner peer didn't stop Jesus from loving him. Even at the crucifixion, while they're pounding nails into his hands and feet, he is loving them and interceding for them and praying for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Jesus taught us to love others, but it wasn't just a theoretical. He came and lived it out in real life circumstances and situations. And, 
And here we see that, that Jesus now washes the feet of the disciples, but afterwards he also declares to them the truth of, of what is going to happen. He says in verse 21, but behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And so after he washes their feet, he declares that one of them is going to betray him. The scriptures tell of the betrayal of the Lord. In Psalm 41.9, it's written, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trust him, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. No, the Messiah would be cut off and he would be betrayed. That now had already been declared in the scriptures. But here we see that, that Jesus says, but woe to that instrument of, of such a dastardly deed. We see that divine foreknowledge does not destroy human responsibility. Just because God knows what a person is going to do does not remove the responsibility that we have for our own actions. God gave you free will. And we live in a linear progression of time. But God is outside of the time dimension. He is not limited to the linear function of time. And so he already knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything that you will do and every decision that you will make. But his foreknowledge of what you're going to do does not interfere, nor does it remove your responsibility for your own actions. You will be rewarded or judged for the free will that God gave you. And so here we see that though Christ knows what will happen, he also pronounces that woe on that person who is going to be the instrument of Satan that will betray Jesus. And in betraying Jesus, Judas makes the greatest mistake in history. We all make mistakes. We're quick to remind each other of that. Nobody's perfect. Uh, and, and we all make mistakes. And, and in our lives, we're sinners. And, and we do sin. And, and we, can put our, we can put our mistakes into categories of little tiny oopses. And, and then we've got some of our bigger mistakes that we've made in our life. And, and then we can probably identify the greatest mistakes that we've ever made in our life but in the history of mistakes there is no mistake that rivals or equals the betrayal of Jesus Christ by Judas today his name is, is identified with treachery and betrayal and unworthiness no parent looks at their child and says let's name him Judas <laughs> It is a name that is just off of the list of baby names when you are deciding what to name your child. <laughs> but before we condemn him too quickly, it is easy to vilify Judas, sinner. We need to be careful in our own hearts that we recognize how fragile each and every one of us is. Uh, 
that with a strong enough temptation, with great enough pressures and, and stresses and circumstances in our lives, we are capable of enormous mistakes in our own lives. And we are also capable of choosing to not enthrone Jesus upon our life, which would then put us into the same circle of distance from God that Judas himself chose. Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray them. And in verse 23, it says, Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Apparently, Judas was not an obvious as the betrayer. He was the trusted uh, instrument in their ministry who handled all of the, the finances, paid for all of the expenses, and handled the accounting for the ministry. He was not suspected. They, they didn't all turn. And when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they didn't all turn and look at Judas. <laughs> They had no idea. And in fact, they all began to examine themselves. Lord, is it me? Is it me? And they examined their, their own hearts before the Lord. As we pause our study right here, I want to draw our attention for a minute back to verse 20, back to where Jesus, after supper, it says that he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So what is the, the purpose now of this cup? What does it mean that there is this new covenant that is in my blood? We see in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church there about this cup, and he says the cup of blessing, that's the communion cup. He says, which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ and then he says, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And so communion is that word in koinonia. He says that cup, is that cup not the, the communion cup with Christ? Do we not enter into our communion with him through that sacrifice, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ? You see, it is there through the sacrifice of Christ and our receiving now that gift of his sacrifice when we take the blood of Christ and we put it over the doorposts of our life that we enter into this union with Christ. And this union that we have now with Christ called communion, it's called koinonia, means an, an intertwining, a connectedness, an intimacy, a, a fellowship of one one with another. When God created man, he created him in three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And, and then he gave the covenant of marriage, which would be a relationship that would be different than every other relationship than you can experience on the face of the earth. You can have friendship at the soul level, and you can be connected in worship and, and spiritual unity in, in spirit. 
But then there is also the physical intimacy of consummation that is reserved for one person and one person only to where there is an intertwining of body, soul, and spirit. There is a, a communion now that is, that is in marriage that is a unique relationship separate from every other relationship that a person experiences. And we find out that marriage is a picture of our relationship with Christ to where we now are connected, intertwined, immersed together, that there is communion that we have with God in Christ. We now have access, but not just access. We have absolute, total, complete intimacy with him. Up until that point, Man had limited access to God. God said, I will come and be your people. I will be your God and you will be my people and, and I will dwell in the temple. I will be in the holy of holies there and I will dwell upon the mercy seat, upon the mercy seat between the wings of the cherubim over the ark of the covenant. And there will be my presence. And, and people could come to God when you wanted to come and draw near to God. You went to Jerusalem and you went to the temple and you came and you brought a gift to draw near to God, but you then had to stop. And you had to give your gift to the priests because you could come no closer to the temple and to God's presence than, uh, than the wall that separated the court of the priests. And the priests now could go on your behalf and represent you to, to God, and they would go and offer your sacrifice. But even the priests could not go into the temple themselves, except for the ones that would go in morning and evening to trim the, the lanterns and to offer the incense of prayer, which was the representation of the prayers of the people that would go. But even the priests that would go in to offer those prayers on the altar of incense that sat outside of the Holy of Holies could not go into the very presence of God, for that was reserved for the high priest only. And he could not go in except for one time a year. And he went in to represent the priests who represented the people, and that was the, the access to God that, that man had. But then there was the new covenant that was given that the veil would be torn and we would now be a kingdom of priests that could all go boldly into his presence. He would now have communion with his people, a connection, an intimacy, an intertwining of life, and that he would take his Holy Spirit and place it inside of us. This was the new covenant now. The Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross to now be able to have his creation intertwined in communion and fellowship with them. This was the, the cup of the blood. Does it not represent our communion with Christ? And then he says in the bread, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? You see communion, koinonia, fellowship, intertwining of relationship. Once you have been saved and placed into a community of believers, God doesn't want us to be church goers or church attenders. He wants us to now enjoy intimacy and fellowship and communion with one another. A place to encourage and exhort, to sharpen one another, to pray for and to be involved in one another's lives. 
We are not to just stay separated uh, from the body and just worship God individually, but, but we are to become and to experience the koinonia, the communion of the body. And so here we see that Christ now, when he ushered in this new covenant, he establishes a new relationship for us with God. And he establishes a new relationship of us into an eternal family, the bride of Christ, the body of believers, the body of Christ. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Don't ever forget how much you're loved. Don't ever forget the sacrifice that Jesus paid for us to be able to experience and to enjoy this intimacy, this communion, this fellowship, not just with God, but also with one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that instructs us into your truth. God, you desire us to be filled with your love and to be connected to you and to one another. Help us to love like you love. And help us to live like we are loved. And help us to connect with one another. And Lord, to be intertwined in communion. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.